it's all too easy to place too much of our joy in the wrong things, uh, things that can disappear rather quickly. And this is often exposed when these things do, in fact, disappear. So it might be, it could be health, uh, it could be people, uh, certain relationships, it might be possessions, it might be our idea of uh, a good life or a perfect vacation or something like that. All things that maybe even you rightly view as a uh, good gift from God, uh, but once they were gone or didn't work out as you hoped, you realized that you had too much of your joy wrapped up in it. And then this can often express itself uh, in different ways. It can express itself in being excessively downcast when it doesn't work out, uh, or maybe even in anger toward others or toward the Lord himself. Uh, today, as we continue on in Luke chapter 10, I'll invite you to turn there, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. We're going to see Jesus himself rejoice, and he's going to instruct us on where we should place our joy as well. So we're going to look at more sure or more certain foundations for our own joy to rest upon. Uh, more certain things than that which will change, that which will shift and move. Uh, so last week, if you'll recall, we looked at the sending out of the 72 and then this week, we're really completing this as the 72 return to the Lord. So let's, uh, let's read this, starting in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. Luke writes, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy... And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. We're looking at certain foundations for our joy. You know, what are we to rejoice in? And so number one, rejoice in the grace that you've been personally shown. It's a safe place to put your joy, in the grace that you've been personally shown. We see this in verses 17 to 20. And so in these verses, the 72 that Jesus sent out on this mission have returned, and they come back, it says, with joy. They come back with joy, and the cause of this joy is given to us. They say that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. And so last week, again, as we saw verse 9, they'd been given power or authority to heal as they went out and proclaimed the kingdom. And so part of this authority to heal include, obviously, authority over demons, to uh, heal those who were oppressed by demons. 
And this causes them to rejoice. They're glad about this. They're happy about this. And that, that makes sense. Jesus, in fact, affirms that a significant thing was occurring as these 72 were out ministering and as demons were subjected to them. He says in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, the New American Standard Bible translate this, translates this verse, uh, I was watching Satan fall, which I think better captures, better shows us what it is Jesus means, that as these 72 were ministering, and as they were uh, uh, healing people of these uh, oppressive demons, as this was happening, Satan's authority over these people was being pushed back. Satan himself was losing ground. So this falling like lightning from the sky, it's an analogy to what was happening as they ministered uh, in Jesus' name. And as Satan and his demons were uh, cast away from these people and as these, their oppression lost its grip. As the gospel goes forth, as the Lord's church is built, Satan loses ground. And this is all on display in Jesus' earthly ministry in very vivid fashion. Uh, as the gospel was first initially being proclaimed. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, if you were here on uh, Wednesday we looked at this. Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus came to disarm the spiritual forces of evil. And that he ultimately did this by dying on the cross for those who believe in him. And it is in this way that he disarmed them by canceling the record of debt that stands against us. So the authority of Satan over people is tied to sin. It's tied to the fact that we sin. And so this, is, uh, this authority is broken when Jesus cancels our record of debt. That's what Colossians 2 is saying. It's not that Satan is really, because of he's so strong, he somehow binds God's hands and he's got power over us. It's because we've sinned that he has a claim on us. And the reason for that is God is holy. He's perfect. And because we've sinned by God's very nature, he must be just and he must maintain righteousness and therefore punish those who sin. And so this is what allows Satan to have this claim or this authority over sinners. And so that's why it is that Paul says in Colossians 2, this is broken. He triumphs over the spiritual forces of darkness by canceling that record of debt. That debt is gone. There's no power for Satan over a person, not in any ultimate sense. And so what Jesus was doing as he, comes to, as he came to earth is he's bringing about the sure overthrow of Satan. Uh, he came with full authority over Satan. Uh, he didn't need to die in order for him to be able to boss the uh, demons around. Uh, but he came, he had authority over them, and he came to break Satan's claim over believers by dying for us. And so he's saying here that this downfall is beginning now. And we know it would be assured by his cross work, and we know all the more that it's going to be completed uh, in the end when he returns. So Jesus adds in verse 19 that uh, they've been given, this, these 72 have been given the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. This is figurative language describing enemy, the enemy's attacks in various forms. So he's not saying there that they would literally never be harmed by scorpions or serpents. Um, certainly we see Paul in Acts uh, shake a viper off of his arm, and he's not harmed by it. Um, but we also know that believers in Christ have, in fact, been injured by wildlife, by animals. 
Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is figurative language to speak of our protection from our greatest of enemies. Uh, so, for example, Ezekiel 2, verse 6. Uh, listen to this. Uh, this is when Ezekiel was commissioned as a prophet. The Lord says to him, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, these are people, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And so the main concern for Ezekiel there is not literally briars and thorns and scorpions, but these people, these men who would oppose him, these rebellious individuals, and what they would say and what it is they would do to them. And so the scorpions, these briars and thorns, it's figurative for what it is he's going to face, the trials and difficulty that he's going to face. Jesus himself here, I think, even clarifies that this is what he's getting at uh, when he says uh, that he, they'd have victory over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. He adds that there. So ultimately, he's saying the enemy cannot hurt you. Yes, it's true, things can go badly, things can go difficult, persecution can in fact uh, come, suffering will come. We've already seen Jesus tell us this is going to come if we're disciples of him, if we want to follow him, discipleship. But the ultimate designs of the enemy will not prevail against the Lord's people. God will use it for good. So, uh, for an example of this, Paul is saying the same kind of thing. Paul, in 2 Timothy he writes this letter from prison, and it's clear in the letter that he is pretty sure he's done running his race. I have finished the race. Uh, he, he knows that he's pretty certain he's going to die here. Uh, this is not going to, uh, he's not going to be released to further ministry. He's going to be put to death. Uh, and yet he says to Timothy, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In Second Timothy two eighteen, so so he knows. Yes, men will probably end up killing me here, and yet the Lord will deliver me from this evil and and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. And so ultimately, even as Satan and even as uh, worldly men and women might work against us and work for our harm, the Lord ultimately will turn it for our good. But despite of all of this good news, all this great news really, despite the authority that he had given these 72, Jesus adds, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, specifically that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the ministry that these 72 have done is very good. It's very good work. It's enormously consequential Think of the people that were delivered from demonic oppression, those who believed the good news that they had proclaimed as they went about and taught. This was really uh, important work, and, and Jesus has affirmed that. He's seeing Satan fall like lightning. This is all amazing. What power has been on display? And yet, Jesus raises their eyes higher yet to a still more glorious reality, one that will be a more sure foundation for their rejoicing, namely that their names have been written in heaven. These 72 were understandably excited about the power they had seen as they went out in Jesus' name and these demons were subject to them. 
But Jesus tells them to be more amazed that they themselves have been forgiven and that they securely belong to God. In a number of places, the Bible talks about God having books in which he has written names. Uh, and this reveals a sure record, a certainty. Even if this is figurative language, it's showing us that he has a, a, a sure accounting. He knows those who are his and those who are not. Perhaps the most well-known reference to a book is the Lamb's Book of Life, which is referred to a number of times in the book of Revelation. Uh, in Revelation 13.8, we're told that the names in this book of life were written before the foundation of the world. And we're told in Revelation 21.27 that it is these people who enter the new Jerusalem at the very end. And so this, this writing down, this is a record of those who believe in the Lord Jesus. This is a record of God's elect. And again, this idea of having this written down, it depicts certainty, surety. There's a record, and Jesus tells these 72, rejoice that your names are on that. He knows. Your names are written. You're his. If these 72 had placed their ultimate joy in the power that they had seen go out, in the success they'd have as they were able to deliver people from sickness, as people believed what they were saying, and uh, if, 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 if this is where their ultimate joy lasted, what would ha or was placed... What would happen if they went out and this time uh, were bitterly opposed by men? What would, what would become of their joy when their loved ones get sick? Or they themselves get a terminal illness? Or they lose a close loved one? It's true that God's plans for them would not ultimately be overturned by this, but their joy might take a very serious hit if that's where their joy ultimately rested, in this success they had as they were out in ministry, as good as it is. And so Jesus takes them yet higher to marvel that they themselves have received grace and mercy from God. And it is only because of God's grace to them that they have any authority at all, that they've been able to take part in this mission. It's, they, they have no special power in themselves, no authority in themselves. It's all by God's grace. Many things that we take joy in, uh, they can come and they can go. Uh, ministry success can come and go. Our numbers in this church can rise and they can fall. Uh, health can come and go. Family can come and go. Uh, jobs come and go. Consider the life of Job. Do we not learn this lesson there? He's the one who says that the Lord gives, has given, the Lord takes away. These types of things... Uh, they certainly should be received with gladness and with thankfulness to God. It's, no, it's not wrong to look at your family or uh, some other blessing and, and, and find some measure of joy and, and gratefulness in that. Uh, but here Jesus reminds us to not place our ultimate joy in these things, but rather in the grace that God has personally shown you, that your name would be written in heaven if you believe in the Lord Jesus. If we make earthly blessings or temporal blessings, a place for our ultimate joy, in all likelihood, if that leaves us, if that's taken away, in all likelihood, we will go to a very, very dark place if that is where our ultimate joy resides. Rejoice, rather, that your names are written in heaven. This is a reality that exists outside of ourselves, 
It exists outside of our experience of either elation or of pain. God's grace to us is from eternity past, and it's outside of, and it's before all that we experience and go through. And knowledge of such grace can and will sustain you through whatever comes, through the ups and through the downs, through the many blessings poured out and the times that those are removed from us. It will likewise guard us against pride in viewing these temporal blessings as an automatic sign that I may be better than somebody else. After all, God's treated me so nicely. Guards us against pride in any ministry blessing we might receive. Ultimately, our joy is in God and in His wonderful grace for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have nothing to boast about. Of course, this promise of having your name written in heaven, this is... This is for those who are trusting Jesus, who believe the gospel. You've recognized your sin, you know your need for forgiveness, and you've called out to the Lord to do just that, to forgive you. You've repented of your sin, you're trusting in him. And if that's you, then Jesus says here, rejoice in that, rejoice. So rejoice in the grace that God has personally shown you. Secondly, rejoice in the sovereignty and wisdom of God. Let's look at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus rejoices here. In the Father's sovereign and wise plan to reveal these truths to children and to hide it from the wise. We see sovereignty here in that God ultimately chooses who he reveals this truth to and who he keeps it from. There's just there's no escaping this reality in the scriptures or right here in these words of the Lord Jesus God is free. And the way he operates here in, 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 in revealing the gospel to some, he does this in such a way as to confound the wisdom of man uh, and to reveal that human wisdom is in fact folly. So earlier it was read from 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. And Paul is, I think, really just expanding on what Jesus is saying here, on this idea that the world does not come to know, nobody comes to know God through human wisdom. Mankind's philosophizing cannot get to God. Rather, true knowledge of God is ultimately something revealed by God. The world expects the smartest and uh, the most elite people to have the answers but God confounds this thinking by instead revealing his truth to children and others who are not highly exalted in the eyes of man. We don't know God through ascending to the heights of human reason and human wisdom. We cannot know God that way. That's not how we get to him. But rather we know God by his revelation according to his sovereign pleasure. 
There are many very lofty truths uh, to search out in the scriptures. Uh, Christian theology, we can study this forever and we will not plumb the depths of it. There's lots to, that we can know and study. However, Christianity is not a religion for the elites of the world. It's not just for elites of the world. The gospel is good news for the lowliest person. And you need not be the smartest one out there or have worldly status in order to believe it. It does not take an advanced degree to understand our guilt before a holy God and the fact that we need forgiveness of our sins. It does not require worldly status to know that Jesus substituted in for all who believe in him to earn their righteousness and to pay their penalty for sin. To know this, to believe this, does not require worldly wisdom. In John 9, we see a man who was born blind who believed in Jesus. Jesus healed him and he believed him. And we also see him in that same chapter despised, utterly despised by the Pharisees. It says they reviled this man for his faith and they reviled Christ Jesus. Uh, even this week, I've seen a number of places uh, crop up. Um, if you know who Stephen Hawking is, uh, he died back in March, uh, but his final book has recently come out. And uh, it's called Brief Answers to the Big Questions. And he is a brilliant man by the world standards. He is, no doubt, very smart in a lot of things. Um, but his uh, quote from his final book is, quote, there is no God, end quote. So this is, again, a very smart, a very intelligent man. Nevertheless, he could not ascend to the heights of human reasons and find God in it. Instead, he finds the opposite. He lands at the opposite conclusion. He thinks there is no God. This is good news for us, since like the Corinthians, not many of us are wise according to worldly standards, powerful, considered noble, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak, what is low and despised to shame human strength and boasting. Many of the world's elites reject this as folly, and yet God reveals this truth to lowly folks. He reveals it to children. He reveals it to those who are not esteemed by the world. And even those who maybe were esteemed by the world, like Paul, uh, will have to reject that esteem in order to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so any of us here who were or have been something in the eyes of the world have probably already forfeited that and you know that and are now viewed as silly and rejected by many. Jesus rejoices in this sovereign wisdom of God and so too should we. In verse 22 we see that the Father shares this sovereign Revealing with his son. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. So in coming to the earth as the incarnate son, the father has given Jesus authority to bring about redemption for his people and authority to reveal the father. He's the image of God. Jesus recounts in this verse the uniqueness of their relationship. Father alone truly knows the Son, and the Son alone truly knows the Father, and he's been commissioned to make him known 
to those he chooses. So this sovereign revealing of who God is and revealing of the truth belongs to the Father and the Son who reveal this to whom they choose. Now, many people uh, will, will fret over this question of am I chosen? Uh, you know, am I part of the elect? And I think what verse 22 does is helps us see that that's not really the question that we first ought to ask about the Father's election, but rather the question is, do I believe in the Son? Do I believe in Jesus? We cannot see the Father, but Jesus reveals him to us. That's what he's saying. Rather, rather than dwelling on the question of the Father's election, we answer the question, do I believe in his Son? Because if we do then we can have confidence that the triune God has revealed the truth of the gospel to us and that our names are, in fact, written in heaven. So the Father's work of election is not divorced from faith in His Son. So how might we know if somebody is elect? They believe. They believe in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and this is why, again, as we preach the gospel to people, uh, we, we just, we preach Christ and we call on people to repent of their sin, to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We're, we're not trying to figure out God's eternal decrees about who may or may not be part of his elect. We, we don't know. Instead, we point people to Jesus Christ and we call people to faith in him, to rest in him and his work. And for the person who does believe in Jesus, then election becomes a source of comfort. It comes a reason to praise God because He is the one who has saved us. And this is not our own doing. The truth of God's sovereignty, uh, especially when it comes to His bestowing of the blessings of salvation on those whom He pleases, His choice to have mercy on whom He will have mercy, as He told Moses. Um, for many, this is a reason for scorn. It's a cause of much uh, consternation and scorn. But for Jesus, it's a reason to rejoice. God's freedom to do what He will is part of what makes God, God. I just want to read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He writes this. This is from a sermon he preached. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And we, Christians, proclaim an enthroned God. And his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and execrated, and he's loathed or cursed. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. 
As human beings, we want to have control of matters, but God says, ultimately, it's mine. And this is a good thing for us. It's a good thing. We are so limited and finite. We, again, because of the nature of sin and pride, we want to exalt ourselves, but we are limited. We see so very little. We are finite. We are constantly changing. I'm just saying this, yet God is not changing. He is infinite. Moreover, we trust the fullness of God's revelation to us in his word, that he is sovereign over all things, but he is also good and just. So that when he passes over some, as Jesus says, hides this from some, and reveals himself to others, we trust that the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, has done no wrong. He does no wrong in this. The fact is, he owes nobody mercy he owes nobody grace. This is what makes mercy, mercy, and grace, grace. Is it's not owed and it's not earned. God is working things according to his own plan. He's working things for his own purpose and pleasure. And this is a good thing. We, we think of Paul. Paul is very explicit in these matters. You think of Ephesians 1. Um, but it's not just Paul. And don't let anyone fool you into thinking that, oh, it's just an overemphasis on Paul. Jesus is telling us right here. End of verse 21. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Some will translate that, translate that, for so it pleased you well. This is good. This is the Bible's testimony throughout the scriptures. God's ways are higher than our own. His sovereignty and his wisdom and his working is cause for rejoicing. This is good news, that this is not all up to us, that God is moving history towards its appointed end, that he is in control of all things. His ways will never be thwarted. We can rest, even in our daily strivings against sin, even as difficulty comes our way, we can rest in knowing that God is in control and he's governing all things. And we may struggle, and we probably will struggle, to understand how this is playing out according to God's plan. We might struggle to see and believe that he's in control, because some things sometimes look out of control. And we looked at that when we went through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, even as Habakkuk felt that God's treatment of the, his people, Israel, uh, was perhaps on the severe side, his judgment, when there were even more wicked people out there than them, uh, yet at the end of the day, as God declares his sovereignty to, to Habakkuk. Habakkuk trusts the Lord and even gets to the place of praise at the end of the book where he says, that though the fig tree withers, though there's no figs on the trees, though the trees wither, though everything's bad, he says, yet I will praise you, God. It's a view of God's sovereignty and goodness that makes such praise possible. I don't understand, but your word says you are in control that you are good, and I, I trust you with this. And this is a cause for rejoicing. This is not an embarrassment for us or anything to be ashamed of. It's God. He rules, not us. He is God. And this is a good and sure place to rest our joy, to rejoice in this. Thirdly, rejoice in Jesus himself, the one in whom God's plan of redemption is fulfilled. 
Rejoice in Jesus himself, the one in whom God's plan of redemption is fulfilled. So look at verse 23 again. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus pronounces a blessing upon the twelve, upon his disciples. So it's moved away from the 72, and he's privately addressing his disciples here. He pronounces this blessing upon them because they have seen and they were witnessing this epic moment in the history of redemption. And indeed in the history of the entire world. Jesus reveals that he is the center of of biblical revelation. He is the one that the prophets pointed ahead to and longed for. He's the one that kings longed to see but didn't. We've talked about this a lot. We mentioned this back in chapter 9 when Jesus was transfigured. Moses and Elijah were there with him. Uh, Again, remember, uh, showing that both the law and the prophets were all pointing to this one, this person, Jesus. And now kings are added to this group as well. David, King David, he certainly understood to a degree that one of his offspring would inherit the nations and rule them all. And that this offspring would be greater than him. See that in Psalm 110.1. Isaiah prophesied about a coming servant of the Lord who would usher in God's redemptive work. Moses himself spoke of a prophet that would come after him, who would be even greater than him, Deuteronomy 18. Ezekiel prophesied about dead bones coming to life. Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant that the Lord would enact. Malachi spoke of the Lord coming to his temple to bring a cleansing and also to bring judgment. All of these prophets and the others, they foresaw in shadowy form the day that Christ Jesus would come, the one whom these twelve now saw and now heard. Hebrews 11 makes it clear that all these Old Testament saints, they lived by faith, but the ultimate fulfillment of what they were trusting God for, the Messiah and the salvation He would bring, they, they never saw it. They longed for it. They saw it from a distance And now Jesus is saying, I am the one they were looking for. The Messiah has arrived. His kingdom was at hand. Many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Blessed are your eyes for seeing this. None of us were there when Jesus said this. We've not seen Jesus with our literal eyes. But in the pages of Scripture, we can see with clarity what it was that the prophets of the Old Testament saw in shadows. The Scriptures tell a unified story of redemption, in which God progressively revealed Himself more and more, and He progressively worked out His plan of redemption. And it all leads to Jesus. It all leads and points ultimately to Him. He is the one in whom God's redemptive plan is fulfilled. He is the one in whom we need to trust. He is the one who frees men from the bondage of sin, and from the power of Satan. He's the one who accomplished redemption through His perfect and substitutionary life and death. There's no greater drama than the history of redemption. 
And as believers, we, we take our place in this story, amazingly. We can look back and we see in the pages of scriptures the arrival of the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament predicted. We can see the redemption that he worked in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension to the Father's right hand. And we can look ahead to the completion of all of this when he will return. We can see in Scripture, with eyes of faith, the one whom all of this revolves around, Jesus. And this is a great blessing, Jesus says. It's a further reason for rejoicing. There's an old hymn, there's a line in in this hymn that says, Blessed are the eyes that see him, blessed the ears that hear his voice, blessed are the souls that trust him, and in him alone rejoice. So Jesus calls us to focus back upon him, to fix our eyes to Jesus. That is, again, ground that will not shake even when all else around us crumbles. God has given us many blessings, many things for which we ought to be grateful, things that we ought to receive with joy. But our ultimate joy must not rest in these things, which may or may not be there tomorrow. Instead, we are to place our ultimate joy in God himself, in the grace that he has shown to us personally, as we're trusting in Christ, in his sovereignty and wisdom, and in the amazing work of redemption that God has accomplished through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what this, your, your word reveals to us. God, we just stop and recognize that we are creatures and that you are the creator. That you alone are God and that you alone know all things. And Father, I pray that as you reveal yourself in Scripture to be God over all, to be all-powerful, all-wise, to be sovereign. I pray that we would rejoice in this, that we would follow the lead of our Savior who instructs us and shows us that this is a sure place for us to put our joy. God, I pray that we would receive all things that you give us with thankfulness, that we would know joy, that we'd be grateful for all the wonderful things you do for us in the joys that come with our our children, our friends, our family members, with the, the food that tastes good that we have to eat, all these wonderful things that you've given us. And yet I pray that we would rise higher yet and rejoice in the fact that you have shown us much mercy and grace and forgiveness. And that even as difficulty comes our way, that we would still be able to rejoice. Father, I thank you for the example of this that we've had in our midst, in the lives of various people who've been able to rejoice even when difficulty comes their way. And I pray even now as we might tremble at the thought of difficulty, whether it's upon us now or perhaps coming in the future, I pray that even now you would cause our hearts to rejoice, that we would know true joy. 
that we would rejoice in God and who you are, that we rejoice in your mercy to us, and the fact that all of our sins would be nailed to the cross and we would bear it no more, that this would result in praise, that you'd lift our drooping heads. Father, I pray that you strengthen each person who is currently dealing with much difficulty of various kinds. I pray that you would, in your mercy, help us to see things clearly, help us to rejoice. Father, we're grateful for your word, we're grateful for your grace and mercy, and we're grateful that you've given us your word, that we can look into it and see the Lord Jesus, and that we can be blessed by believing in him. And I pray that even as we go now, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us to stand. Father, we just pray that you would uh, bless your people for your own name's sake, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.